It's wonderful to welcome all of you here tonight. Wasn't uh, Dr. Billings' uh, visit to CES really amazing last week? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> he got it. Yeah, I read that there were over 160 different countries attending at that show. So we're going to do a quick test now and, and see if, if you can name 160 countries. <laughs> no, we're, we better get it over to Dr. John for the Technology Spotlight. Do you know how birds fly? I know how birds fly. You know, they, they do that little flappy thing, right? <laughs> well, if you know how birds fly, how about we have you make a little contraption with wings and have it fly like a bird? That's actually really hard. In fact, it's so hard that there are very few examples of anyone ever doing that. And the closest thing usually is a contraption that has wings that flap up and down, but you still need something to give it some thrust to get it going. So they don't actually fly the way the birds fly. Well, some researchers at Stanford University wanted to know more about how this really works. So, of course, they consulted the experts, right? You know who the experts are, don't you? It's the birds, of course. You know, and you're probably thinking, well, birds don't really talk. It's a parrot. Okay, parrots talk, right? No, no. Really, it's a coincidence that they use these little parrotlets. They're basically parrots that are really small. And the reason why they used these was because they're smart, and they can train them to fly just when they want to. You know, they put a little, little nut on the other side, and the parrots will fly from one side to the other. And you can see in this picture the little chamber that they used. And they had like 30 sensors all over to measure the pressure differences all over in the chamber. And then they had a high-speed camera that was taking 1,000 frames per second while the parrot flew back and forth. And uh, you can kind of see in this diagram the path that the parrot would fly from one perch to the other. And uh, it kind of shows the direction of the net thrust that they had, that the parrots had when they were moving from one side to the other. And we understand how flight works, right? You know, there's the weight that makes the bird want to go down. Then there's the lift of the wings that makes it want to go up. And the wings make the thrust, right? And then there's drag that slows them down. And that's pretty much the textbook explanation that you'll see if you go and look at the, the books about this. Uh, but it's actually a little more complicated than that. And like I say, if you've ever tried to make a contraption with flapping wings, <laughs> it's, uh, you can tell there's something else going on here. Uh, I want to take a look at what the researchers found. Uh, first of all, most of the real work and the lift is done when the wings are going down, which is what you would expect. And you can see in this diagram across the top, they have kind of the movement of the wings shown in the blue line there. And then at each of these different points, they have measurements where they untangled the lift of the wing from the drag created by the wing. And uh, by separating those two, they found out some pretty amazing things. If you look down uh, at T1, you can see how there's the T1 mark at the line. Down at T1, that's when they're taking off. You can see that the birds actually use the lift to make themselves go forward, to get going. 
which is kind of amazing when you think about it. And then the drag of the wing is actually creating an up thrust. So the, instead of the drag slowing them down or making them go down, it's actually causing them to be lifted. And about 50% of their weight uh, is being lifted by the drag of their wings flapping, which is really amazing when you think about it. That isn't a very efficient way to fly, but apparently the birds think it's a really great way to get started. And you know, that's the really hard part about making a flapping robot, isn't it? With flapping wings. Well, that's pretty neat. And then the other thing that they found is when the bird lands, it actually is using its thrust or its lift backwards to slow down as they come close to the perch. You'll see that over there at the L2 and L1 in this diagram. You can see how uh, as it's getting close, the blue lines are the thrust, or the lift, I mean, and as they get closer, the lift is slowing them down as they approach. So, uh, of course, when you look at birds flying, you know, it seems really obvious. They flap their wings and they go up. But if you want to actually try to make one, a robot that could flap its wings and fly, then some of these details about what's going on are really important, aren't they? In fact, these discoveries might not change the way that we make 747s, but they might open up a whole new way of flight, a new thing. You know, we have fixed wing, and then we have rotorcraft with uh, spinning propellers like helicopters, and we have lighter than aircraft like blimps. What if now we could have flapping wing craft? We're going to need a better name. <laughs> we'll work on that. <laughs> anyway, so when you have a problem like this, talk to the experts, the birds, right? That's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. And now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. All right. Well, tonight we're going to talk about vacuum tubes. Now, you might be thinking of something completely different than what a vacuum tube is. It kind of sounds like a new marketing campaign for straws. <laughs> Introducing the all-new vacuum tube. Drink your shake. Clean the floor. <laughs> Okay, but they're not vacuums like vacuums, what we do clean the floor with. They're called vacuum tubes for other reasons, okay? And we have to start out with this, talking about Thomas Edison. And you can see these three guys here, and the guy at the far left holding the light bulb is Thomas Edison. Now, of course, the light bulb has a vacuum pulled inside, meaning they pulled all of the air out of that glass container. So it's completely sealed, and it's pulled a vacuum. Well, when Thomas Edison was working on the light bulb, and as he was perfecting it, he was trying to figure out how to make them last longer, and he noticed when they would stop working that the filament would break, and it would break on the positive side um, inside the light bulb, on the positive side of the, the two prongs coming up. And he also noticed that there was kind of this burn mark on the side of the glass of that positive side. So it was the negative and positive. And he started doing some tests, and he found that if he put a third or a second piece in the light bulb, so you have you know, the filament piece, and then he put a second piece, a plate, if it was connected to a positive charge, that plate, then it would impact the flow of whatever was happening inside of this, this wire that he had. And he wasn't sure what was going on, and so he did you know, what you'd expect, uh, patented it. 
So he patented it, <clears throat> and um, that's and it became known as the Edison effect, not patenting, <laughs> but uh, this this phenomena of something was going on when you put this plate in, something's going on. Well, the next gentleman on this uh, slide here in the middle, named John Fleming, actually worked for Edison, and so he knew about this. And later on in his life, he would go work with someone who did a lot in the world of radios and Marconi over in Europe, and he remembered this Edison effect. And we're gonna jump over a lot of uh, some of what happened, but he basically started doing tests with this. So he had basically the light bulb, he had a vacuum pulled, and inside of it, he had the normal setup with, with the wire coming in and going out. So you had two like this together, it's one, and then he put the plate in there. And they started to notice certain characteristics. And ba basically, we have to start with inside of this glass. And we have to start with the importance of a vacuum. And to put it in kind of simple terms, when heat would be applied to that cathode, which is the, the wires coming in and going out, the heat would start doing something very interesting. There were electrons inside that metal, but they weren't leaving that metal. But as the heat increased, the electrons would get more excited and start moving faster until they were leaving the metal of the cathode. And he did what Thomas Edison had found. He took a second piece and had the plate inside of this vacuum. Now they had to pull a vacuum, and we'll talk about why in just a minute, but if that plate had a positive charge, the electrons would shoot to that plate. And if there was air inside, the electrons would hit into all the molecules of the air and it wouldn't be nearly the power that, that they had inside this vacuum. So the electrons are shooting to that plate. And they started doing a lot of tests with this, using this tube, this tube with a vacuum pulled, to you know, receive radio signal. But the big question was, how do we amplify it? And what I mean is, Back then, they were able to get radio waves where they could get signal and you could hear over the radio waves. You could hear someone's voice, but it was very quiet. You had to use headphones. You had to be very silent. Um, it, it didn't work very well. And so they were trying to figure out how to get that louder. They needed to get that signal louder. The, the signal, the modulated signal, was very soft. So as they're trying to figure this out, we come to our third guy. And this is Lee DeForest. And he has... He's quite the character. Um, several of his patents made people like John Fleming not very happy because they seemed pretty suspicious, um, suspiciously using ideas of other people, so much so that he was in several lawsuits, Lee DeForest was, and he was very inspired to find a way to change the vacuum tube, or what was the vacuum tube at the time, into something new, something better. And he was trying to get this amplification better? How can you use the vacuum tube to really get things stronger, louder, the signal? Well, he says that he had a breakthrough thought. And what he thought of was, if you look at this diagram, you can see on the two sides, on the top, we have the athode, which is the plate, and on the bottom we have the cathode, which is the two of the, the original. And in the middle, he had an idea to put basically a grid. And there's lots of different kinds of grids. That, that they used, but he, and it, he did a lot of experiments, but he finally put a third piece into his vacuum tube. And what he did was he found that if he put a negative charge on that middle piece between the two, the flow of electrons shooting across to that plate would stop. 
because now between them, there was a negative obstacle. And so they weren't, those negative um, electrons weren't flowing anymore to that positive plate because now there's this, it's kind of a red light, green light deal uh, where if he turned it on and put a negative charge on that grid, they would stop. So all of a sudden he could control the flow of those electrons and it was super, super sensitive. Very sense, so sensitive that if you hooked up that, that grid piece to like a modulated signal, a really faint radio signal, so that it would increase in the negative charge or decrease depending on that modulation. Now all of the sudden, this huge river of electrons would stop, slow down, or increase by that small faint modulation. So it took the modulation and it made it much, much louder, if that makes sense, because the flow was being controlled by that signal. And so all of the sudden they were able to amplify the signal of things. And this would become something that they would use, yes, in radio, in TVs, and in, in lots of different equipment for amplifying. But also, this would become very important in the side of being able to turn on and turn off that flow. And in the first computers, this would change everything because now they had a way to have an on or off. And it was very efficient compared to what they had had before. Now, of course, to make this work, they had to get very hot to get those electrons to actually flow and leave you know, the cathode. So they weren't very efficient. And eventually, transistors would kind of take uh, the place of vacuum tubes. But if you've ever seen, you can see this. I mean, I, I remember thinking, oh, light bulbs. Uh, because they're kind of the same thing. They're, they are the same idea where there's a vacuum pulled inside, but it's completely different than just the job to give light. So vacuum tubes, they changed the technology world, and of course they got replaced by something that shrunk everything down, made it much, much more efficient, but they were certainly something very important, and Edison did receive royalties on that. So <laughs> vacuum tubes, thank you. All right. Now, introducing Dr. Roger Billings. Am I coming through loud and clear? Oh, now I'm coming through louder and more clear. It's because we turn on the vacuum tube. <laughs> you know, uh, John was going like this, and Tobias is going like this. You know, I've been gone too long, haven't I? <laughs> it's really, really, really getting serious. Well, uh, I want to wish everybody a wonderful Happy New Year. Uh, how's 2020 going so far? Pretty good? It's going to be really a great year, isn't it? I'm pretty excited about it. And Dr. Peget, uh, didn't she do a great job last week? Yeah, I think it was there. Very good, yeah. I have to say that um, I thought it was pretty fun when I was making those clips out in CES at the conference that I put two on the same subject and then I uploaded them so she wouldn't have time to look at them. <laughs> and it was really funny because she told all about this one 
And then there was some more about that one. <laughs> and I was watching. <laughs> uh, she's, and, but she was good. I thought she did a real, real good job. She acted like she knew what was going on. It was, it was just really, really good. But you know, what a wonderful experience to go out there and see all of those people gathered together to talk about ideas. Ideas that somebody thought of. And you know, we're, we're coming fast into a Cellus world. It's going to be on what holiday? Memorial Day. It's supposed to be? No, it is Memorial Day. <laughs> and so all of you need to plan on being in Kansas City on Memorial Day, either physically or cyberly, okay? <laughs> But we're going to be giving out the awards for our International Science Fair winners this year. And I hope you're working on your science fair projects. I've been getting some, some questions from students saying, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated because I don't know what to do for a project. We had one student last year that did a project, and, you know, she's pretty young. She worked pretty hard on it. And uh, she was announcing the other day, they didn't like my project. So who didn't like it? They didn't like it. How do you know that? I didn't win any awards. <laughs> okay, well, you've got to have a really good project to receive an award. But I want to talk a little bit about science fair projects tonight because it's time to get really serious about it. And some people have not figured out yet what a science fair project is. So we're going to kind of back into it tonight. too much drama, right? <laughs> well, I'll hear about it. Anyway, <clears throat> science fairs are an opportunity for us to learn how to go to the Consumer Electronics Show and win. It's by doing a project that advances the knowledge of science. And you know, if you do a science fair project right, the first thing you've got to do is find out what science already knows. If you discover something that was discovered a long time ago, it may not impress very many people. So that's what we call our literature search. That's where you go in and you, you Google it to find out what people already know. But I want to talk about what is a science fair project. I think if we could really understand that, then we'd be ready to charge forward and do one, okay? A science fair project is a project you do to learn something you want to know. For example, I'm thinking about the same thing you are. That compelling question has been bothering me all day long. Can flies fly backwards? I was hoping John was going to get into that. But he went to the birds. <clears throat> Can flies fly backwards? And you say, why do I want to know that? Well, one of the things at CES that I didn't even show you, and I, I was tempted to, because it was really kind of funny, but there was a display there from the, uh, the exhibits from Israel. And it was a little gizmo that would track a fly in your office or your home <laughs> and would zap it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, <laughs> fly zapper. Can flies fly backwards? Have any of you wondered about that? Does anyone know the answer? 
And more important than the answer, does anybody know how we could find out? How can you find out if flies fly backwards? I know birds can, because I've observed that. But how can we find out if flies, you know what flies are? Can they fly back? Who's got an idea how we could figure it out? How we could find out? Michael. Put a slow motion camera on a fly. And that's been the big commercials lately. You know, the new slow-mos? <laughs> Have you seen those, right? Well, it's that kind of a deal. If you had a camera that could slow down the motion of a fly, well, then we could see if they ever fly backwards. How many of you think they can fly backwards? How many think they can? We need research, don't we? <laughs> Now that sounds like not necessarily an earth-shaking question, but it's a good example of the kind of a question that you could ask. And all you have to do is want to know. What do you want to know? And if you can come up with a question that you can't just Google and see the answer, that's even better. However, sometimes for a science fair project, you could even do a question that other people have already studied. And you could, you could do your own experiment to find out, and then it's fun to Google and see if you got it right. Or Bing, you can Bing or Google, or <laughs> whichever, you know. Um, I almost slipped and told him about my new search idea. They'd like to know. No, it's, it's <laughs> oh, projects. I love, I love new ideas. So, can a fly fly backwards? And if you could come up with a use for it, look, what if we found out they can't? That'd be interesting. Can flies see backwards? I've studied that one, and they can. They got those really funny eyes, like a whole clump of cameras pointing every direction. And no matter which direction you come in to get them, they can see you. Yeah, that's good to know. Uh, another interesting project might be, how can you catch a fly with your bare hand? <laughs> I did that project. <laughs> and, and I just want to report my results. I did this when I was in elementary school. <laughs> and you can catch a fly with your bare hand. I don't recommend the pinching method. <laughs> They're too fast. Even if you come in from behind, they see you. It, it doesn't work. But they take a certain amount of time to realize that you're coming for them, and then they have to fire up their wing engines and get going. And so what you do is you back your hand way up here, you open it up, and then you swoosh in like that. You can't go slow, you have to just swoosh. And when you fill them on your hand, you grab. <laughs> if you haven't tried this, if you... If you haven't tried this, you need to, because it does work. In fact, I got up one time to about 60%. That means more than I missed, I caught them. All right? So I'm going to do it in slow motion so you can see it. Now, a lot of it is the facial. <laughs> got it? So you just go like that, and you catch them. Now there's two things that you 
you, you got to know if you're going to try something like this. First of all, what do you do after you catch them? <laughs> and by the way, just because you caught them doesn't mean they're not doing well because you're going bzz, 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 bzz. If you open your hand, you uncatch them. So what do you do? And this is a place where we have room for more inventing. But the method I discovered was the baseball method. Bzz, bzz, bzz. And knock them out. It would knock them out. You ever notice, though, that when you knock out flies, that after a little while they wake up and fly off? Yeah, so you have to do something after that if you want to end their mission, okay? Like step on them. But uh, that's, that's the first thing that you need to know is you, you gotta do something with them when you catch them, so figure that out. The other thing you've gotta do is wash your hands when you're done. <laughs> Why is that? Because it, it's an emotional, social kind of a thing. <laughs> Thank you. Flies are the most obnoxious insects in the world. I mean, mosquitoes are terrible. They come in, they take, you know, a couple ounces of blood, fly away. I hear it's just the girls that bite. I heard that too. Yeah, but I haven't proven that yet. <laughs> any rate, flies, though, they're worse. And you say, well, what could be worse than taking your blood? Taking your blood's pretty bad. But flies. They come and land on your food, and they land on you, and you say, so what? They just, they don't, they're not very heavy. Who cares? Well, the thing that messes it all up is where they land before they get on your food. That's just what messes it up for me. So, you know, uh, an interesting science fair project could be to see if flies can fly backwards or to see if they can see backwards, which is easy to prove they can. But another one might be an applied, an applied project. In other words, instead of just answering a question, satisfy some need with your own idea. Your, and that's called an invention. And what need do we have? We have a need to eliminate flies from our environment. Now, some of you have seen that gun that shoots salt. They call it a fly gun. If you haven't seen it, I found one at the truck stop. <laughs> I was really enamored with it. Uh, it's yellow. I, I gotta have one. They have a little video there. And uh, you fill it up with salt, and then you cock it, and you shoot the fly. And it'll shoot maybe three or four feet. But that's far enough they don't see you coming get some. And I was so excited I brought it home and the first day Andrew talked me out of it. <laughs> and I didn't even, I didn't get to use it on one fly. But I hope you're using it a lot, are you? But anyway, that's a real exotic way to get flies. But there's another way and it's called a, a fly trap. And there's two kinds of fly traps I know about. One came from the planet of Venus. <laughs> It's called a Venus flytrap. You've seen those? It's a, it's a plant. It's a plant that's got these little claw things sitting out there, just like a plant. Plants don't move, but these do. 
And it's really fun. If you haven't seen Adventist Flytrap, order one. <laughs> you can order them on, on the internet. Just order one. You need one of these. Put it in your room. And uh, they eat flies. It's a carnivorous plant. A carnivorous plant? <laughs> it is. Well, tell us about that. It eats meat. So you think flies are meat? <laughs> yes, they do. So a fly comes along and it lands there, and the plant, you know, it's just a plant, and so the fly's not too worried, and then all of a sudden it goes, <laughs> and it traps it in there. And then you wait for it to chew up the fly, but it doesn't. It just kind of disappears over days. It absorbs it. It's really kind of neat. Venus fly trap. They're pretty neat. And there must be some kind of a smell in there that attracts the flies because when they're in a room, they find that, that fly trap, and it's pretty neat. The other kind of fly trap, though, is the one I learned about at scout camp. We didn't like having a lot of flies at scout camp. And so we got these gallon bottles. Fly traps. You've seen those, haven't you? They're a big bottle, and you screw on a funny lid, and the lid has a thing so that it's easy to find it your way in, but it's hard to find the door coming out. And how's that? Comes down to a point. So unless you go just the right place, you can't find it. But there's a lot of holes going in. And you go hang those fly traps, these bottles with the lid underneath, the special lid underneath, and you catch the flies. But you don't catch any flies unless you have some way to inspire the flies to go in. And at scout camp, we use a little fish. So you catch a fish, put it in the bottle, put the lid on, and hang it out under a tree somewhere. The flies would go around, and they would smell that fish. Flies love to fish. You heard of fly fishing? <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's better than toe fishing. Anyway. <clears throat> Not nice. <laughs> Not nice. Anyway, so the flies go in there, and literally, the bottle starts filling up with flies. And as they get lots of flies in there, and they don't have food in that, and they start forming a layer of dead flies, they stink. And they stink fly smell, and that makes more flies come. And you get a whole gallon bottle, and you can go put those on your garden. It's pretty good. I don't know who invented those, but those are one of the coolest things in the world. I'm going to tell you something that somebody invented that they shouldn't have. It's called fly paper. Have you seen that? Fly paper, I think, was invented by flies. And the way fly paper works, you get this little tube, and you roll it out. It's like tape. And it's got yucky, yucky, sticky on it. It's like it's wet sticky. And you hang that it and you hang it up. And the flies come along and they land on it and then they can't take off. So it ends their flying. Do you know what a fly is that can't fly anymore? It's a flu. <laughs> okay, but anyway. Why do I say they were invented by flies? Because invariably, you bump up against them. <laughs> and then you got fly stick all over your arm. I don't recommend it. 
they're really, really, really bad stuff. And furthermore, they hardly any get hardly ever get any flies. I think it's a conspiracy. <laughs> so what if you could figure out a better way to trap flies? That would be a pretty amazing science project. But let's just take that fly trap. It's a bottle with this funny lid. And let's think about all of the science fair projects you could do with that. All right, science fair project number one. What is the best bait to put in a fly trap? Is it a fish like we tried? Is it Could you give me just a minute? <laughs> Is the microphone okay, Jim? Just a second. She's having fun over there, distracting us. <laughs> All right. Would a fish work better, or would an old piece of meat, or an old piece of bread? What would work best as a bait? And you know, you actually could study that. How would you do it? How can you find out which one works best? Maybe you'd need two traps. You couldn't put one bait in one day and then put another bait in another day and compare the results because maybe there are more flies that day, right? But if you have two traps and you put them pretty close together, you put bait in both, you can see which one gets the most flies. Isn't that an exciting science for a project? One fly. <laughs> so you, one of your students replied to whether or not flies can fly backwards. And what did he say? And or she say? Or they say? It was a she. She. Okay. Miss Caitlin. Just guys don't know that kind of stuff, do they? <laughs> a fly can fly backwards. Fruit flies are well known for flying backwards, and all flies have 360-degree vision. And Google is up tonight. No, that's, that's good. Isn't it interesting that we have so much information at our fingertips? The fact that we have so much information available right at our fingertips now means it's so much funner to do inventing and do stuff and see if you've got a new original idea. If you can find something, some question that you really want to answer that Google doesn't know, <laughs> you've got a corner on something and you really can do it. Okay, good. So that would be an example of, of a science fair project. And so you'd have to make it scientific. First of all, you have to come up with what we call your thesis statement. And your thesis statement is, what is the best bait for flies? And then you come up with a hypothesis. What's a hypothesis, Dr. Peget? Your theory? I don't know, you tell me. My theory, it's your theory, dear. <laughs> yeah. My theory. A hypothesis is what some people would call your best guess. Mm -hmm. I think that fish would be the best. And so it's good to make a hypothesis. Why does a scientist make a hypothesis? So they'll sound smart. So they'll sound smart. <laughs> what? <laughs> that didn't sound so smart. <laughs> no. A hypothesis, which is an educated guess, which means maybe you did a little research or you thought about it or you asked Dr. Monet or something <laughs> like that, it helps you steer your experiment and know how to do it, okay? If I'm trying to figure out what's the best bait, I ought to make a guess on what's going to be the best, and those would be the things I'd try. I'd try a banana. 
Maybe that'll catch fruit flies. And that's probably true. In fact, have you noticed that fruit flies come out of nowhere? <laughs> Just get some fruit and put it there too long and you'll have fruit flies. And you could be on a planet where there are no fruit flies <laughs> and they would appear in a few days. They're amazing. And fruit flies are uh, math students. They know how to multiply, <laughs> don't they? All right, so you make a hypothesis and when you're doing your project and you're reporting it, you say, okay, here's the question I wanted to have answered. What is the best bait to use in a fly trap? And my hypothesis, my theory is that it's gonna be fish, dead fish. And then you start presenting your data. So my scientific method was to get two fly traps, put them out side by side so I know they'd have about the same number of flies flying around on the same days, and then to count the flies at the end of a period and see which one had the most. If they're about the same, then I say it doesn't make much difference. If one's a lot different, then I know that's the better bait. Does that make sense? And what are my conclusions? Use fish in your fly trap. That is a sign. That's pretty simple, isn't it? When you start looking at it that way, you can do all better kinds of things. However, there might be projects better than flies. <laughs> There might be. Someone told me when I was very young that if you want to become a millionaire, invent a better mousetrap and the world will beat a trail to your door. <laughs> so I tried it. You know, it's kind of hard to make a mousetrap, to make a mousetrap that work. Or so I thought. I tried a lot of different things because I wanted to make a better mousetrap. You know, they got them cheap at the store. They even got the kind that have fake cheese now. You've seen it, you just have to cock them, set them out, and then when you get a mouse, you don't even have to dump the mouse. You just throw the whole thing away because they're so cheap, right? Now, the kind of mouse trap I grew up with, you actually had to pull the spring back and let the mouse out and use it again and put new cheese on them. The new ones just throw them away because they have fake cheese. Well, some of our students took on a project to make a better mouse trap, didn't we? And uh, we did that because we had a place in our facility that was infested with mice. Mice are a really interesting little critters. First of all, they're very furry and cuddly. <laughs> Just in case you never wanted to get close enough to find out. They are, they're cute little animals. But, oh, I'm having a weak moment. I love these kids. I really have to tell them. <laughs> Don't there be lions forever? <laughs> okay, guys, this is off the record. <laughs> this is one of the funniest stories that I ever heard in my life that's true. And so, <clears throat> do you want to tell it or should I just tell it? <laughs> oh, you don't. Well, you just go about your business. So anyway, there was this little house out in the country. No. And uh, <laughs> no. No. and one night, 
Dr. Monet, who was a little girl. I heard this story, and it's a great story. Dr. Monet went to bed in this little country wow. farmhouse one night, and it was late, it was dark. She went, she climbed under the covers, uh -huh. and the way she told me the story is she felt something. So she got up and turned on the light, and it was a whole nest really? of baby mice. And she had been laying on them. She laid a mouse. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to have the students rally towards my side tonight. You know, uh, Gosh. I once had an experience. You know these little little nests of mice? They're just little teeny things. They don't even have any fur. They're just skin pink, you know. And, and they, they come out of nowhere. In fact, uh, I saw a video of a herd of mice. A herd of mice. A herd of mice. <laughs> I think this particular one was down in Mexico. But when there's a lot of food, the mice population just explodes. And this particular year, they had a lot of pinot harvest. And the pinots, when they get ripe, if you don't harvest them, they just drop their pinots on the ground. And the mice love them. And there were so many pinots that they just had an explosion of the mice population. And in this video, it's like a stream of mice going through, and it was, it was awful. But anyway, coming back to my little story, just almost without looking, all of a sudden, there's a little nest of baby mice. And they can be in your garage, they can be in your house, they can be in your bed, they can be anywhere. <laughs> all right, so one time, <clears throat> we found a nest of baby mice in our house. And, uh, you know, I love little creatures and everything, but these were mice, and it was cold outside, and they weren't welcome, and I didn't know exactly what to do. Another true story. So I did what any, you know, good adult would do. I escorted these little mice into the bathroom, <laughs> and I flushed them down the toilet. <laughs> and, you know, no, I'm not recommending you do that. In fact, how my experience turned out, I don't think I would do it again either because <laughs> just when I did it, these two little girl eyes came around the door and saw me. I was, I was caught. And this cute little daughter said, what are you doing? And I thought, it's not going to sound right when I say, I'm killing these little mice. <laughs> these little baby mice, I'm going to kill them. <clears throat> and I said, I'm sending these little mice to heaven. <laughs> and she looked at me with big eyes and she says, heaven's down the toilet? <laughs> anyway, how do we get off on this? We're talking about this mouse trap. Okay, so the mouse trap. We were going to invent it. We tried a lot of different ones. Uh, and and we, we could really, we could have a whole science fair about making better mouse traps. But we came up with this mouse trap that was an old five-gallon paint bucket. And it had a ramp that the mice, and we made a ramp so they could come up nice and easy. And they got up on top. And there's this little thing over there to eat on the top of the bucket. And as they're going out to get the food, we made, 
a teeter-totter door like that that would drop them down in the bucket and then we put a little bit of water in it so they could swim. <laughs> and that mouse trap caught more mice than you can believe. And the interesting thing, the mice would come in, we put a camera on it, of course. The mice would come in, drop in, the door would flip back up, ready for the next one. Ready for the next one, ready for the next one. And pretty soon we had a whole swimming pool of mice. And the interesting bait, the bait that worked the best for us, you'd never guess what it is. Who can guess? What do you think it was? Put big giant clumps of cheese down in there? No, we tried cheese, but something worked better. Do you know what it was? Jeremy, you probably were there and saw it. What was it? Peanut butter. Peanut butter is a good bait. We found something better. And the problem with the mice traps, they work pretty good, but you only get one, and then they're done. This thing, it was like automatic. If you got a lot of mice, it's just what you need. Anybody else want to guess? Thomas? Hydrogen oxide. Water. Water. And I don't know if, it's, if mice love to swim or they were thirsty. I think they wanted water. As they smell that water, they come up looking for it, and they found it. <laughs> and it really, really works. So that could be a science fair project. What would the question be? Could you make an automatic, resettable mousetrap with a five-gallon bucket? Your thesis or your, your theorem, your hypothesis? I think you could. Here's how we build it, here's how we tested it. You starting to get the idea? A science fair project is where you have a question that you want to know the answer to, or you have an idea, you want to see if it works. In the science research that I've experienced throughout my lifetime, there is a law that says it never works the first time. <laughs> we used to call these laws Murphy's Laws, and there's a bunch of Murphy's Laws. And one of them is, it'll never work the first time. Also has things like, if anything ever goes wrong, it'll always go wrong at the absolute worst moment. And, you know, so you gotta plan on doing some research. It's not just easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. It's hard, so that's why you get to do it. Come up with an idea and try it. You say, well, it's hard to come up with an idea. No, it's easy to come up with a question. For example, Is, this is, this is the scientific question we want answered. Is Dr. Monet a Dr. B because he told about the mice? My hypothesis is, oh yes. <laughs> now, our research procedure. Let's look at her and see if we can judge by the emotion on her face. You do realize that they pull quotes out of your thing and they're coming in. Oh, really? <clears throat> Let's delete that. Yeah, it's too late. So what are they saying? I'm not, I'm not repeating that, so it's indelibly marked in anybody else's mind. <laughs> okay, well anyway, I really think that the science fair program made a huge difference in my life. 
three years I participated in the science fair in high school. I didn't have a chance before high school. And three years, it helped me see how this whole scientific method works. The scientific method is a strategy to change the world. My first year, I was going to run a car on hydrogen, and I tried and it didn't work. <laughs> so, with the science fair coming up very fast, I got a new idea, and my new idea was, could you make plants grow using sound rather than light? And I wasn't gonna use just any old sound, I was gonna use ultrasound, high frequency sound. And I tried it and it didn't work. But I did notice something interesting. I took bean seeds and I put bean seeds under water because ultrasound doesn't go through air, it goes through water. And then I treated them under the water and I noticed the ones that I treated germinated faster than the other ones. So then my project question became, does ultrasound make seeds germinate sooner? And it did. I tested it, it did. And I had all these little rags folded over inside of plastic bags so they stay wet and I made them germinate and I did some that I hadn't treated, some I did and I could see a big difference. And that was pretty neat. And then, as I grew them out, I noticed that the ones that germinated sooner, pretty soon were only as big as the ones that germinated later. So eventually they caught up. It was because while seeds are growing with all the food in the seed, they grow fast. And when they run out of that, they kind of slow down. So it turned out that it didn't make them grow faster because I was going to save the world, <laughs> eliminate hunger, and that didn't work. So now the science fair is coming, and I figured, you know, i got to figure out some good use out of this tremendous invention I have. You treat them with ultrasonic waves, and it makes them better. And I went over to a local seed company, a little one, and they, they grew uh, flowers and different things, and they sold seeds. They didn't really raise the seeds, but they sold them. And I was talking to them, and... Uh, I found out that when they grow a flat of flowers, they start out with a, a little flat box, they put some potting soil in it, and then they put these seeds in, they germinate. When they get a little plant, they pull them out and put them in individual little pots, and then they sell them to people like me on Mother's Day. But there are some seeds that are very, very expensive, and they're little, and they're very, very expensive, and a lot of them don't ever germinate. And they were telling me that just for an ounce of those seeds, they'd pay $200. And a lot of them were wasted because they don't germinate. So I got this idea. I wonder if my ultrasound would make all their seeds germinate, or more of them at least. And if it could, it could save them a lot of money on seeds. So they were going to plant their pots. And I said, well, can I do an experiment? Can we do one with my treater and one without my treater? And so I took half their seeds and treated them, and half they just did normal. And lo and behold, a significantly greater number of the seeds I treated germinated and grew. When you think about it, 
It's kind of fascinating. Can you imagine that this is a seed? Why are you smiling? She's pissed. <laughs> Your students are responding to whether or not I'm a little annoyed, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a. <clears throat> I think it's going to be me. a great year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> can you imagine this is a seed? It's a big seed. Seeds can <laughs> sit around. They can even sit for a whole season, for a year, and they never germinate until they get moist and warm. If it's really, really freezing, they won't germinate. If it's really, really dry, they won't germinate. So it has to be moist and warm. What is it that makes a seed wake up and decide to go from this lifeless little thing into a plant. And I didn't know what it was exactly. In fact, I still don't. I think it's really intriguing that they do that. If they didn't, I think we'd all starve to death. So it's, it's really good they do. But then I thought, if not every seed wakes up and germinates like it's supposed to, maybe if you give it a kick in the seat with ultrasound, Maybe to make them wake up. And I found out from my Science Fair project, it does. And I convinced the seed company to buy an ultrasound machine to treat their expensive seeds. Hooray, that was my science project. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound like much. It won first place in our little teeny science fair. And it also won a chance to go on a cruise with the Navy, a science cruise, which I really enjoyed. Science fairs are a way to get a perspective on the world and on using this wonderful scientific method to solve problems. The scientific method isn't just if you're going to be a scientist. It works in music, it works in art, it works in many, many other areas. And so I hope you'll all seriously think about what you'd like to do for a science project. And it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter what you have, you can come up with a question which you can design an experiment to answer. And maybe your first year is just answering a question like, do flies fly backwards? <coughs> but in a few years, you're going to be designing new inventions that are going to really change and improve the world. What? So there are a few questions, actually. OK, let's, let's do some questions. My mic on? Uh-huh. All right, good. Mm -hmm. All right. There are a few students who want to know if they um, have to participate in the science fair, if all students do. And what did you tell them? I told them I was going to ask you. You're going to ask me. <laughs> the answer is no. Science fair is strictly voluntary. But there is this one thing you should know, and that is if you don't participate in the science fair, you won't win. <laughs> no, that's good. No, it isn't. In fact, one way to participate is just by going to the science fair and getting a lot of good ideas. It's not for everybody, but for those of us that are inspired by it, it's a lot of fun. They also want to know if they are, um, they're out of state, so how do they send their project in? Okay, how do you send your project in? Through the miracle of YouTube, it's pretty easy. Someone's got a cell phone, and it's not very hard to film your project. In fact, a good way. What's that? They want your mic on. You want my mic on? Is my mic dead? 
It's muted. Gonna share. Hello, testing, testing, <laughs> testing's working now. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, working. Hmm. She was so upset, she muted my mind. <laughs> <laughs> they think I'm an alien still, and so my power just went over and turned it off. <laughs> There's some data. That's my science project. <clears throat> okay, now let's see, where were we? So oh, yeah. if they participate in, yeah, so what do they do? So a good way to do this is to set up your project and get someone to film it and then introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Dr. Peget Monet. And, and this is my science fair project. I am studying whether or not the person next to me is of an alien origin. Yeah, yeah. Origin? Origin. origin. Anyway, and so my hypothesis statement is, I think so. <laughs> That's pretty scientific right <laughs> yeah. there. And this is my scientific method. So yeah, it's a great way to do it. And you can show your project, you can film it. If it's something where you had to go somewhere, something outside, just film it. Put it on YouTube, and then what you do is you send in your link. And that's how you do it. So everybody can do it, no matter where you are. Last year, we had science fair entries from India, mm -hmm. from Germany, from Brazil. From Egypt. From KPAX. That's right. That's my, Zytron. Zytron's my home planet. Zytron's your home planet. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. So everybody can do it, and it's pretty fun. And it's also kind of fun. I think uh, we should come up with a way to uh, label your project so that anybody who wants to see them can go search on YouTube with something like Celos. We, we put all of the winning ones we put on the site. Maybe we can put up more. But they're really interesting. And then the ones that win, we invite them to come here. And, and for the people that can't travel here, then we send you your prize. Okay? It's neat. So we're going to have something on the website announcing the, the Cellos World and the Science Fair. They're wanting to know when it is exactly in the information. <laughs> the Science Fair, Beverly, Dr. Beverly, where are you? There you are. Do we have the Science Fair announcement on the site? Yes. And where, what is the link to it? Where do you find it? It's on Acellus.com, right? It's on there? Or Ourselvesacademy.com. All right, somebody. Here he is. Someone over here has an opinion. Under Acellus.com. I mean, Acellusacademy.com. Under About Us. And Events. There it is. Just like that, right? Good. Anything else? No. No. <laughs> We have now survived the questioning, which is really good. Well, I hope somebody's been inspired tonight to uh, at least understand how you would go about doing a project, how you go about deciding what project you want to do. Uh, one other little thing that I'll, I'll just throw in that I learned. Uh, is there any place around where you live that you think would be real interesting to see? Maybe there's a company or, or, or a university or something that you'd like to get to see firsthand. Science fair projects unlock the door. You just go in and you say, hi, I'm here today working on my science fair project. And I'm wondering if there'd be someone here that could talk to me about how you make these candies. 
<laughs> okay, there are a few questions. <laughs> I wonder if it would be possible for me to visit. You'll be amazed how the doors open. They said, there's a kid out here who wants to talk to you. Well, tell him I'm busy. He says he's doing the science here. Well, send him up. <laughs> it really works. They want to know how old you have to be to enter the science fair. How old do you have to be to enter the science fair? Is there a rule on that? Yes. Five years old. You have to be five years old to enter. Got that? Mm hmm If you're four years old, just work on it for two years. <laughs> okay? How old can you be? What's the oldest you can be? Probably 18, actually until you graduate or, or 18, okay? I don't think we have a rule on how old, but I think on the science fair it's 18. Is that right? Okay, that's right. Who else? They want to know if they can really do a science fair project to see if Dr. M is an alien. Yes. In fact, this could be a joint project. And um, I'm looking for different kinds of tests that we could do experiments like tonight I did the mouse test yeah. <laughs> because I figured if she was an alien she wouldn't blush <laughs> well that was and she didn't I didn't <laughs> now that doesn't conclusively prove anything but it sure makes us curious doesn't it it does I'm, I'm good. I'm going to re-catch heck tonight. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much, everybody, for, for joining with us. And let's let this be the year of the greatest science fair ever. I think we're going to have a huge one. And I am still seeking some really nice prizes. So see if we can make it worth your while. Thank you and good night. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.